Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for August 8th, 2022. Here's today's rundown. The Justice Department is clamping down on a growing number of new scams aimed to defraud the federally funded portion of Medicaid. Attorney Mary Inman reports on two charity scams and how whistleblowers blew the whistle, resulting in millions of dollars in settlements. Today we'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Stephanie Ferguson, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Alana Houston, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, the Senate yesterday passed with a vote of 51 to 50, the Democrats' tax, climate, and health care legislation known as the Inflation Reduction Act. They're going to be sending the measure to the House, which could pass it later this week. Evidently, support for health care coverage as well as prescription drug savings under Medicare are expected to benefit millions of Americans. We have a great deal of news to report, and we begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. You know, the last week I received two emails about a Humana policy and figured many others would be seeing the same issues, so I decided to address it here. These people have been told by Humana that for Medicare Advantage patients, if the hospital bills an inpatient admission and Humana denies payment, the hospital must follow the Medicare rebilling rules. They will not accept a claim that has observation hours added to the claim unless the chart has an order for observation services. Now this is perfectly appropriate for traditional Medicare because Medicare is a federal program and federal regulations have to be followed. But Medicare Advantage plans are not federal programs and they believe they can set their own payment policies and procedures. We know that because Humana themselves told us. They issued a memo that CMS told them that the inpatient only list does not apply to them. And in fact, they not only do not honor the inpatient only list, but they also disregard the ambulatory surgery covered procedures list. Furthermore, we all know that Medicare Advantage plans, including Humana, blatantly ignore the two midnight rule, a federal regulation determining when a physician should admit a patient as inpatient. That means they are absolutely allowed to pay for something even without an order. Now, putting aside the issue of whether the hospital should appeal the denial in the first place, which I'd advise you to almost always do, if you're going to accept outpatient payment, there is no way you should settle for not being able to bill observation hours. You provided the patient with necessary hospital care. They're not disputing that. They're claiming you don't deserve the DRG payment. Fine, but then let the hospital get paid equitably for the care that was provided. And that includes paying for room and board and nursing and food and housekeeping and routine supplies and so on. None of these costs are incorporated into the few charges that will be paid, such as the ED visit, the imaging, and select diagnostic testing. And also remember that when they issued you the denial, if they told you that you can bill this day as observation, you should be able to take them on their word. Hopefully you have that in writing or the name of the person on the phone who stated it. So what else should you do? Go to your contracting people and make them aware of this. Insist that they get the contract modified to allow you to get paid the appropriate amount if you rebuild a denied inpatient admission. Don't settle for no order, no observation payment. 
Now, the other option is what I'm sure David Glazer would advise, and that is to accept this policy, but also insist that federal laws specify that Medicare Advantage plans must follow every single Medicare rule, including honoring the inpatient-only list and the two-midnight rule. I wish that was true, and I hope he can convince Congress and CMS of it. Now, this pick and choose that Humana does where they enforce what rules they want and ignore those that they want to ignore is just not acceptable. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. CMS has modified the additional documentation request, or ADR limits, for Medicare fee-for-service recovery audit contractors, or RAC programs, for suppliers. Yet one of our listeners informed me that CMS has found a quote-unquote workaround from the RAC ADR limits. She said, there is a nationwide supplemental medical review contractor, or SMERC, audit, and now nationwide quality improvement organizations, QIO, contract audits. These contracts came about after the congressional limits on number of audits by the RAC. Well, then Dr. Hirsch retorted, quote, but SMERC and QIOs are not paid on contingency fee. So they are different audits. RACs are evil. Smirks and QIOs have a few redeeming qualities. Well, I completely do agree with Dr. Hirsch, but her point is well taken. Smirks and QIOs follow different rules than RACs. So of course the Smirks and QIOs have distinct ADR limits. This is similar to the look-back periods. The look-back period varies depending on the acronym, RACs, MACs, or UPICs. RACs look-back period is three years, yet other acronyms get longer periods. I think what Dr. Hirsch is saying is right, because RACs are paid by contingency instead of a contracted rate, we have to limit the RACs authority because they are already incentivized to find problems. Plus, they are allowed to extrapolate. The RACs already have too much lease. So what are the RAC ADR limits? Well, interestingly, they just changed in April 2022. These limits are set by CMS on a regular basis to establish the maximum number of medical records that may be requested by a RAC per 45-day period. Each limit will be based on a given supplier's volume of Medicare claims paid within a previous 12-month period in a particular Healthcare Common Procedure Coding System, or HCPCS, policy group. The policy groups are available on the Pricing, Coding, Analysis, and Coding PDAC website. Limits will be based on the supplier's PIN, or tax ID D number, Limits will be set at 10% of all paid claims by policy group and paid within a previous 12-month period divided into eight periods, 45 days. Clear as mud, right? Although a RAC may go more than 45 days between record requests, 
in no case shall a rack make requests more frequently than every 45 days. So the limits are based on paid claims, irrespective of individual lines, although credit or replacement pairs shall be considered a single claim. So I wanted to go into the SMERCs and QIOs ADR limits to see whether they are following their rules, what their rules are. But I'm out of time for today. So I'll research the SMERCs and QIOs ADR limits for next week, and I will have an answer for you. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of practice. And coming up at about, mm, let's say, nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Falana Houston, who is sitting in this morning for Matthew Albright, and famed whistleblower Mary Inman, who's standing by to report our lead story, Whistleblowers Blowing the Whistle on Alleged Charity Scams. This is Monday. It's August the 8th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You're invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join their effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use, the results of their latest physician advisor survey, and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, I say this every Monday morning at the same time. What could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's the risk that your organization will wind up with a headline akin to orthopedic surgeon diagnosed with neurological disorder allegedly caused hundreds of injuries, lawsuits say. But before I get to that, I want to just quickly mention Ron's point about Medicare Advantage plans, because I agree that it is right to express frustration with Humana's policy. Um, but I just want to clarify one thing. I don't think that Medicare Advantage plans have to follow all of Medicare rules. They're free to waive them willy-nilly. They just can't be more restrictive than Medicare. They have to be as generous as Medicare, and they can be more so. And so I completely agree with Ron's point. Just want to make that clarification. So I don't know about the facts about this headline I'm talking about. I'm working off the story from NBC News, which indicated that an orthopedic surgeon in Florida allegedly caused hundreds of devastating injuries. The article explained that between 2016 and 2020, patients noticed that the doctor was slurring his words, having difficulty with balance and concentration, having angry outbursts, demonstrating erratic behavior, and more. Now, the article indicates that various physicians and nurses expressed concern about the doctor. The lawsuit asserts one nurse asked to never work with the doctor again, but the hospital declined her request, forcing her to continue participating in his surgeries. Now, I don't know the other side of the story, but for purposes of this segment, it's actually not that important, because this is a segment about the importance of recognizing zebras. In medicine, there's a saying that when you hear hoofbeats, 
think horses, not zebras. But the reality is zebras can occur and focusing on platitudes or norms can prevent their quick discovery. I'm gonna tell two stories. One's a personal experience, one is from a book I read. The personal experience involved a patient who complained she received a bill for a physical, a 99215, but she never removed any clothing. The clinic administrator looked at the woman's chart and saw that a full exam was documented. Under the horse zebra view of the world, it would be easy to assume that the patient was mistaken or lying and dismiss her concerns. But this administrator was thorough and open-minded. She also had some nagging doubts about the doctor. She dug and the investigation revealed that the physician was using templates and frequently recording exams that had never occurred. So while there was documentation of the physical, it was fabricated. The woman had been right and dismissing her complaint would have allowed a major problem to continue. The second story is from my book recommendation, The Blind Eye by James Stewart. I highly recommend it. It tells the story of Michael Swango, a physician at Ohio State University. An unusual number of healthy patients died while Swango was on the team. Uh, he was a resident, I believe, at the time. And a nurse saw him injecting something into a patient. Nurses voiced concerns, but the initial investigation cleared him. It shouldn't have. It took a decade for OSU to admit its error. Now, it's hard to think of a bigger zebra than a physician serial killer. In that sense, I'm somewhat sympathetic to OSU. As the book makes clear, most observers had a very difficult time believing that a physician could be intentionally overdosing patients. Some didn't want to believe it because it seemed improbable. Others figured the PR result would be so bad that learning the truth wouldn't be worth it. Basically, incredulousness and incompetence worked in concert. I should add, this wasn't his last gig. He worked and killed in several more spots. You gotta read the book. Now that sort of event is, quite fortunately, a unicorn zebra. But while incredibly rare and difficult to believe, it was exactly what was occurring here. And a good investigator has to be able to detect the rare. I often think of whether I've dismissed as non-credible an allegation because it seemed too wild or problematic. The truth is, I don't know. All I or anyone else can do is keep an open mind full of skepticism. I guess we want to bray that we properly recognize a zebra. So Chuck, Inspector Clouseau was a terrible investigator. So I thought about using Henry Mancini's theme from the Pink Panther, but came out against it. Instead, I'm just going to take the pink portion. Sometimes it becomes really important to say, or at least think, as pink things. No, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, all. Thank you all. I wanted to follow up. Actually, David's talking about books, and I, I'm going to start with a, talking about our book that's on my Amazon watch list set to release in October. It really got me thinking about today's segment. The book is by Dr. David Nash and Charles, I'm going to butcher this, Wohoforth, titled How COVID Crashed the System. 
a guide to fixing American healthcare. From the podcast interviews and the highlights, I have read the book discusses how the system pre-COVID was already designed to fail. The failure results from our racial and financial inequities and our misguided individualism, which tore communities apart as we bartered against each other for PPE, staff, and hospital beds. What we see today is the continued impact of our already fragile healthcare system. At HIMSS 2022, economist Diane Swank warned the audience that we are ready to, we are about to see a lot of hospitals close, and the biggest impact will be the already underserved and rural areas. Realistically, they can they cannot sustain the current financial challenges with high turnover resulting in staffing agency wage costs and the growing inflation, which is hitting every hospital supply from medications to bed sheets. According to the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform, CHQPR, 40% of hospital, rural, rural hospitals are at risk of closing, such as in my own state, Santa Cruz Regional Hospital in Green Valley, Arizona, closed its 49-bed hospital and laid off over 300 employees this past June. Since 2010, 193 rural hospitals have closed, and in 2020, 19, a record high, closed their doors, all causing patients to travel greater distances for emergency and outpatient services. CHQPR attributes the primary cause for rural hospital closure stemming from not enough revenue for, from health insurance plans to sustain services. Many of these hospitals do not have a large private insurance payer mix to offset their uninsured and Medicaid populations. In order to slow the painful decline to our rural health system, CMS is proposing a rule to create a new designation for rural hospitals called Rural Emergency Hospitals, or REHs. Now, we remember Dr. Hirsch discussed this in prior segments, that the proposal defines REHs as not providing acute inpatient care services but they have a transfer agreement in effect with a level one or two trauma center. They provide 24-7 staffed emergency department and outpatient and or observation services. The designation would make some expansion to critical access hospitals. The REH would have an additional 5% payment of the services provided under the Medicare hospital outpatient prospective payment system. But consideration is also being made during the open comment period for an additional monthly facility payment to support REH's long-term viability. Although any type of help is needed to serve our rural communities, I, as in prior discussions, am concerned about the designation excluding the allowance of inpatient admissions. So I thought this would be a good question for our listener surveys to see what our listeners are thinking as well. Are you in favor of a new hospital designation by CMS, the REH, Rural Emergency Hospitals? Yes, no, or unsure? And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much. And we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, the Monitor Money Legislative Update with Philana Houston. She's sitting in this morning for Matthew Albright. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic health care payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Falana Houston. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning. As you mentioned at the start of the broadcast, the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. The bill would allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drug costs. 
If passed, negotiations between Medicare and drug makers would begin in 2026 with the initial rollout limited to 10 drugs. The bill would, is also expected to cap Medicare beneficiaries' out-of-pocket drug expenses to $2,000 per year as the Kaiser Family Foundation reports that 1.4 million enrollees incur such expenses every year. Next, as Matthew recently reported, the Biden administration extended the COVID-19 Public Health Emergency, or PHE, through October 13. The PHE's telehealth waivers will get an additional 151 days or about five months after the end of the PHE before they expire. Speaking of telehealth, Congress is also working on a telehealth bill that would permanently extend some of those waivers. On July 27, the House passed the Advancing Telehealth Beyond COVID-19 Act. This bill would allow certain flexibilities to apply through December 2024 if the public health emergency period happens to end before that date. Specifically, the bill would allow five components. First, that beneficiaries would continue to receive telehealth services at any site, regardless of service or location, which would include the patient's home. Second, the occupational therapist, physical therapist, speech-language pathologist, and audiologist would continue to provide telehealth services. Third, federally qualified health centers, FQHCs, and rural health clinics, RHCs, would continue to serve as the location of the healthcare practitioner. Fourth, the evaluation and management and behavioral health services would continue to be provided via audio-only technology. And fifth, hospice physicians and nurse practitioners would continue to complete certain requirements relating to patient recertifications via telehealth. It is important to note that although the intent of the bill was to create permanent health, telehealth provisions, the version of the bill that the House passed would only remain effective through 2024. Chuck, we will continue to monitor this bill as it is not clear if the Senate will have time to debate it. In other news, the Biden administration reported last Tuesday that the percentage of Americans without health insurance dropped to an all-time low of 8% in the first quarter. The administration credits this decline to the Affordable Care Act and American Rescue Plan. Further, the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, reported that the uninsured rate for adults ages 18 to 64 went from 14.5% in late 2020 down to 11.8% in early 2022. HHS also reported that state-specific analysis show the largest changes in the uninsured rate for low-income adults between 2018 to 2020 generally occurred in states that recently expanded Medicaid. One last story. Last week, HHS declared a public health emergency related to the outbreak of monkeypox, which has infected over 7,100 Americans. The White House intends to provide more than 1 million doses to help increase the amount of diagnostic tests to 80,000 per week. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Falana. That was Falana Houston. Falana is the Assistant General Counsel for Zealous. And coming up, two whistleblowers blow the whistle on charity donations. Standing by with that exclusive report is famed healthcare attorney Mary Inman. Now it's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. Thank you, Chuck. So I asked listeners, are you in favor of a new hospital designation by CMS? specifically the rural emergency hospitals. And what we got was 
about half said unsure and the other half said yes. Yes, they are in favor. I'm sure it's the additional funding and the support for our rural communities. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much. You're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. It's time to prepare your case management and utilization review teams for a successful implementation of changes in the 2023 inpatient prospective payment system, the IPPS, IPS. Gain a solid understanding of the 2023 inpatient prospective payment system final rule and propose rules for the 2023 outpatient prospective payment system and Medicare physician fee schedule. Sign up for an important webcast on the 2023 IPS. It's scheduled for August 18th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now at the Rack University Bookstore. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, our lead story this morning is about a whistleblower who filed the suit alleging that the system made improper cash payments to a local charity. It's a scheme to increase the system's Medicare funding. This at a time when the False Claims Act is under scrutiny by the government. The story is both consequential and irrelevant in the reporter's story. Here is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary, you have two whistleblower stories to report, right? I sure do. On previous Monitor Monday podcasts, I've reported on the unsavory practice of pharmaceutical companies creating quote-unquote charitable foundations allegedly aimed at helping patients afford excessive orphan drugs by subsidizing copays. After whistleblower insiders revealed that instead of subsidizing copays for all expensive orphan drugs, the copay subsidies were only selectively directed at particular pharmaceutical companies' proprietary orphan drugs, DOJ brought a series of successful enforcement actions, alleging that Big Pharma's supposed charitable co-pay subsidies were instead thinly disguised kickbacks to increase the sale of their orphan drugs. Today, I'm reporting on a newly burgeoning area of charity fraud in the healthcare world. This time, instead of kickbacks by Big Pharma masquerading as charitable copay waivers, DOJ is clamping down on a scheme to defraud the federally funded portion of the Medicaid program. More specifically, hospitals increasing use of non-bona fide donations to satisfy their state Medicaid contributions and trigger federal Medicaid matching funds, thereby improperly boosting their federal Medicaid payments. Two recent DOJ settlements with hospital systems highlight this trend. First, in April of this year, Florida Hospital and Baycare Health agreed to pay DOJ $20 million to resolve claims that the hospital system knowingly caused false claims for federal Medicaid matching funds to be submitted to the U.S. by making improper, non-bona fide cash donations to the Juvenile Welfare Board of Pinellas County, knowing that the funds would be transferred by the board to the state of Florida Health Care Administration for Florida's Medicaid program which would trigger a corresponding federal matching payment. The prohibition on non-bonafide donations ensures that states are paying a share of Medicaid payments. The non-bonafide donations increased Medicaid payments received by BayCare without any actual expenditure of state or local funds and enabled BayCare to recoup its original donations to the Pinellas Juvenile Welfare Board and also receive federal matching funds. The case was initiated with a KETAM complaint filed by whistleblower Larry Bomar, who received $5 million as an award for initiating the whistleblower action. 
Second, although it was not a false claims act case, in February of this year, the Justice Department reached a $5.5 million settlement with NCH Healthcare in Florida for impermissible Medicaid donations. NCH made no made donations to a school board to improperly boost Medicaid spending. These cases build on two previous DOJ settlements from 2015 and 17 in False Claims Act KETAM cases involving similar allegations of non-bona fide donations. A 2017 $12.24 million settlement with Christus St. Vincent Regional Medical Center for non-bona fide donations under a rural special hospital program in New Mexico, and a 2015 $75 million settlement with community health systems involving non-bona fide Donations made for rural counties to get a 75-25 federal match under a special program for rural hospitals. The takeaway for healthcare systems is that if you're making donations, be sure they are actually for charitable purposes and not simply a backdoor way to improperly increase your federal Medicaid matching funds. That's it for me. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law firm of Constantine Cannon. we got a couple of minutes now to answer some questions. David, let's take a look at a couple of questions, see if we can get them answered. You bet. So Ginger asks a question that I've worked with her organization on. So, uh, Salon, I don't know if you want to comment on this, but if um, in the telehealth services that are covered by CMS, if state law doesn't allow it, uh, would the straight state regulations trump, um, you know, kind of the Medicare coverage? Do you want to comment on that or do you want me to? Feel free. You can comment on that. Thanks. So, Ginger, you're, so basically – You've highlighted a really important and complicated part of telehealth, which is you've got these multiple layers, right? And if you're not allowed to do something, I often frame it as there's a difference between whether you can do something and whether you can bill for it. Um, I sometimes call it the toucan. I I go back to uh, my breakfast cereals and think about the toucan um, because the fact that Medicare will pay for something doesn't matter if your state won't allow it. Um, and so, so you are correct. If the state won't allow it, Medicare's coverage becomes kind of irrelevant. Chuck, I think we're at the bottom of the hour, so I will turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. Uh, that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Money, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelist, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Tiffany Ferguson, Felana Houston, who was sitting in this morning for Matthew Albright, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman, who reported our lead story. And remember, folks, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.